So as we continue to make our way through John's Gospel, and as we draw near, obviously, to the end of our study of John's Gospel, we're looking again at John 21, verses 1 to 17 this morning, which is the passage that I just read to you. And we are focusing in on the responsibility of the disciples to be fishers of men rather than fishers of fish. And the accompanying duty also, which Jesus lays upon them here in this passage, to feed and tend Christ's sheep. As I pointed out to you last week, John 21 is John's unique way of including a great commission in his gospel. As is so often the case, John's gospel is stylistically different from the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yet, of course, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit who inspired Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is saying substantially the same thing. So the other Gospels have Jesus explicitly telling the disciples to go make more disciples at the end of each Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John has Jesus subtly reminding the disciples of the time a few years prior when he had told them that they were to be fishers of men from that time forward. So let's begin with that point by way of brief review from last week's sermon. The disciples were charged to be fishers of men. Remember, as we looked at last week at greater length than we will do again this morning, that here in John 21, Jesus reveals himself to the disciples by alluding back to a previous incident, which is recorded for us in Luke chapter 5. So let's read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 together for the sake of anyone who wasn't here last Sunday morning, because this is an important building block for what we're drawing out today. Luke 5, verses 1 to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, He asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Again, as I pointed out to you last week, notice a few things. First of all, that that is a few years prior. This was when the disciples were first called to follow Jesus. So this is not the same incident. They're separated by a few years. 
But notice the similarities. Jesus is the one who tells them to let down their nets. It's not just that these guys go out fishing and happen to have a great morning of fishing. It's at Jesus' word that they go out and they let down their nets. Second, they catch a ton of fish after laboring all night and not catching fish. The connection then between Jesus telling them and them having a large catch of fish is not that it's coincidental, but that it's because Jesus told them to let down their nets that therefore they caught the fish and that it is therefore a miraculous catch of fish and the miracle was done by Jesus. Thirdly, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus compares fishing to evangelism and says that from now on, so from that day about three years ago, when that first miraculous catch of fish happened, from that point on, the disciples were not to be fishing for fish, but were to be fishing for men. Now, if you were one of the disciples who experienced that huge catch in Luke 5, three years prior, and you heard Jesus say that from now on you will be fishers of men, and then Jesus appeared after the resurrection, as he did here in John chapter 21, and gave you a huge catch of fish, again, for the second time, wouldn't it jog your memory to remember that incident from a few years prior? After all, that was a memorable event. It wasn't as if it was just so average and so mundane that the incident might have just gone clear from the disciples' minds. It obviously made a profound impression on them, evidenced by the fact that Peter, who was an experienced fisherman, realized this was no ordinary morning of fishing. And he came and he threw himself before Jesus in humility, recognizing that maybe not everything about Jesus that he would eventually come to realize, but recognizing that, that there was something exalted and majestic about the identity of Jesus. So what is the takeaway from the incident in John chapter 21 then? Without stating it explicitly, Jesus is reminding the disciples of that first occasion in which he gave them a huge catch of fish. And it's not just some parlor trick that Jesus is like, oh, remember, I'm the one who can help you catch lots of fish. Recalling that incident from a few years prior, would involve not only recalling a huge catch of fish, but recalling what Jesus said, that from now on, you will be fishers of men. And so the disciples are suddenly rebuked in John chapter 21, after Jesus has risen from the dead, and after he has told them that they are to receive the Holy Spirit and to be sent out into the world, even as the Father had sent Jesus, the Son, into the world. After that, the disciples go fishing. And Jesus is suddenly reminding them, that's not your calling anymore. You're to be fishers of men. And so though the disciples might not be crystal clear about exactly what that means yet at this point in their lives, as we've seen over the last few weeks, there's still some lack of clarity and some ambiguity that Jesus needs to rectify. Now that he's been risen prior to his ascension, he's going to spend 40 days teaching them. And then the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out upon them and give them further clarity, reminding them of the things that Jesus has taught and bringing it to a fuller understanding. 
here in John 21, though they might not understand exactly what it means to be fishers of men, we know, of course, from reading the rest of our New Testaments, that what that entails is going to be calling people to trust in the Messiah, repenting of their sins, and following Him. After all, this is how people are caught for Christ, isn't it? We tell them that Jesus is willing and able to forgive their sins. And that through faith in Jesus, they may have a reconciled relationship to God in the here and now. And that they may have life everlasting in a restored creation at the end of all things. When as in Revelation 21, all things are made new. The response called for as we go out and as we proclaim this message is to tell people to trust in Jesus and to forsake everything that stands in the way of following Him and to commit themselves to a new path. This is what Christians mean when we talk about faith and repentance. It's trusting in Jesus, turning away from our sin, living a new way, following Him. When the person spoken to believes this message and trusts in Jesus and repents, he is caught, so to speak, for Jesus, to use the fishing analogy. So in other words, in, in Christianese, if you will, fishing for men is what we call evangelism. That's what Christians mean when we talk about evangelism. And that's what Jesus is reminding the disciples here in John chapter 21 that they really should be doing. Not fishing for fish anymore, but they have a new calling. Evangelism. Fishing for men. Going out and proclaiming Christ Jesus as the object of people's faith and fidelity. So the disciples are to be fishers of men. They have been called to evangelism. Then, having caught some men, they are to feed and tend them. And here Jesus changes up the analogy. The disciples were charged to be feeders and tenders of sheep. So he has been talking about fishing and now he's talking about shepherding. This is what Peter tells, or Jesus tells Peter to do in verses 15 to 17 of this text. He tells him three times, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. We'll look a little bit more at that passage next week and the restoration of Peter and try to draw out that theme a little bit more next week. But this morning I want to point out that though Jesus is talking directly to Peter, it is not going to be Peter's job alone to feed and to tend Christ's sheep. So I fully realize that Jesus is talking directly to Peter here. And he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. I understand that Jesus is talking directly to Peter. But the mandate that Peter receives here is also the mandate of the other disciples. All of the disciples are to be fishers of men and feeders of sheep. We know that this is true. Because in Matthew's version of the Great Commission, Jesus says to all the disciples, and not just Peter alone, 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I, command, that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, it is the job of all the disciples to make more disciples in the first place, that is, to fish for men. And then, having caught them and brought them in the boat, so to speak, they are to be looked at as sheep who need to be fed and tended. And this is the job of all the disciples, to provide this aftercare for those who have been caught through evangelism. It's the job of all the disciples to feed and to tend these sheep of Christ's. Having come to Christ, people still need a lot of help. They still need to observe, learn to observe all that Christ has commanded. Disciples are made and baptized, and then they need to learn to observe all that Christ has commanded. Sometimes this involves doctrine or feeding, if I can put it that way. Other times, people need a variety of other things. Encouragement, a godly example, a rebuke, or something else, whatever the case may be. There are lots of needs, and we could call that kind of thing tending the sheep. And again, to use the sort of the Christianese word that's out there, we call this discipleship. So evangelism is going out and calling people to faith and repentance toward Christ Jesus. And then once people have come to faith, they're baptized, they're added to the church, they still need to be discipled. This is feeding and tending the sheep. So we see that Jesus uses two animal-related metaphors to describe the tasks of the church. I see some of you are drowsy here this morning. So in case you somehow missed it, the two metaphors so far are catching fish and feeding and tending sheep. All right? Now the first metaphor, catching fish, aptly describes what evangelism is like. When fishing... Do fish want to be caught? No. Is it easy and guaranteed with a 100% success rate? No. Do the fish put up some resistance to being caught? Yes. Do you sometimes come home without much success? Yes. This is how evangelism so often is too. It's not often that you go out and you share the gospel with someone and for the, first, for the first time and that they immediately accept the truth and they repent and believe and become steady, faithful, lifelong believers of Jesus. Very rare. Does it happen? Sure, yeah. We actually, we know of people for whom that has happened, right? It's, it's not outside of the realm of possibility or experience, but it's relatively rare. More often, it's common to have to struggle through the resistance that someone puts up to the gospel. And only through perseverance can you land them in the boat, so to speak. Many times you go out fishing and you come home with very little, if anything, to show for it. But Jesus commands these disciples here in this passage to go out fishing nevertheless. And just as they are willing to try fishing for fish in spite of the unpredictability of success, 
in any particular occasion. So it is their duty to try fishing for men in spite of the unpredictability of success on any particular occasion. You might just come home tired with a sunburn and not much to show for it. But you still got to try. And just as you're bound to catch some fish eventually when you go fishing for fish, you're bound to catch some men eventually when you go fishing for men. In fact, though I reject Jerome's fanciful interpretation, which I shared with you last week, of the significance of the catch of the 153 fish, representing the 153 known species of fish at that time, and therefore representing people from every tribe and tongue and nation whom Christ will gather into his kingdom. I think that that's stretching it and pushing it a little too much. But I do agree that there is significance to the fact that Jesus makes the disciples here successful in their catch of fish. This is one guarantee that we have as we evangelize, that Jesus will make his church successful in the Great Commission. There really will be people from every tribe and language and people and nation. A multitude so large that no one can count, gathered around God's throne, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the reason that we can say with certainty that that will be the case is because there is a man on the shore, so to speak, who tells us to put down our nets. And he will see to it that the nets are full. So fishing is an apt analogy for evangelism and feeding and tending sheep is an apt analogy for discipleship. When feeding and tending sheep, are the sheep always cooperative? I have no direct experience whatsoever with shepherding sheep. I'm a, I'm a lousy fisherman, but I've done it. I have, I have never shepherded sheep to any degree whatsoever. But I am led to believe that the answer is no. The sheep are not a cooperative bunch. The shepherd must care for animals who do not always understand what's good for them. And they do not always cooperate. This is part of the challenge of feeding and tending sheep. And it's part of the challenge of discipleship. And sometimes, sheep are not unwilling, but are simply unable to care for themselves. For example, sheep can't handle a wolf without the shepherd's help. Nor can they rid themselves of parasites. Allow me a lengthy quote from a man named Philip Keller. No relation to Tim as far as I know. Who was a shepherd of sheep before he began shepherding people. He wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And here's a lengthy excerpt. To name a few parasites that trouble stock and make their lives a misery. There are warble flies, bot flies, heel flies, nose flies, deer flies, black flies, mosquitoes, gnats, and other minute parasites. Sheep are especially troubled by the nose fly. These little flies buzz about the sheep's head, attempting to deposit their eggs on the damp mucous membranes of the sheep's nose. If they are successful, 
The eggs will hatch in a few days to, to form small, slender, worm-like larvae. They work their way up the nasal passages into the sheep's head. They burrow into the flesh and there set up an intense irritation accompanied by severe inflammation. For relief from this agonizing annoyance, sheep will de deliberately beat their heads against trees, rocks, posts, or brush. They will rub them in the soil and thrash around against woody growth. In extreme cases of intense infestation, a sheep may even kill itself in a frenzied endeavor to gain respite from the aggravation. Often, advanced stages of infection from these flies will lead to blindness. All this excitement and distraction has a, has a devastating effect on the entire flock. Ewes and lambs rapidly lose condition and begin to drop in weight. The ewes will go off milking and their lambs will stop growing gainfully. Some sheep will be injured in their headlong rushes of panic. Others may be blinded and some even killed outright. Only the strictest attention to the behavior of the sheep by the shepherd can forestall the difficulties of fly time. At the very first sign of flies among the flock, he will apply an antidote to their heads. I always preferred to use a homemade remedy composed of linseed oil, sulfur, and tar, which was smeared over the sheep's nose and head as a protection against nose flies. What an incredible transformation this would make among the sheep. Once the oil had been applied to the sheep's head, there was an immediate change in behavior. Gone was the aggravation. Gone the frenzy. Gone the irritability and restlessness. Instead, the sheep would start to feed quietly again, and then soon lie down in peaceful contentment. Keller says that all of this comes to his mind when he reads Psalm 23, You anoint my head with oil. Whether this is a good exegesis of that verse in Psalm 23 or not is beyond the scope of my sermon. It may well be, it may not be, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point that I'm making is that many times sheep are uncooperative as you try to care for them, but they need to be fed and tended anyway. And many times, even if they're willing to be, to be tended, they're unable to tend to themselves. And they need help from outside of themselves. For example, they cannot rid themselves of these parasites that Keller described. So not only do sheep need to be fed, but they also need tending in other ways. Maybe you need to apply some mixture of linseed oil and sulfur and tar on the sheep's nose. Maybe you need to protect from a wolf and so on and so forth. Once people come to faith in Christ, there are various ways in, people, in which people need to be tended. So as we think about caring for the people who have come to faith in Christ, as a shepherd cares for sheep, we must realize that people still need a lot of help. They need to learn to observe all that Christ has commanded. Sometimes this involves doctrine, or feeding, if you will. Sometimes people need encouragement or a godly example or rebuke or even just practical help of some sort to get themselves into a difficult situation. Because we care for the whole person, we want to help them holistically, generally speaking, with their lives and their circumstances. We could call that kind of thing tending the sheep. And it's not always easy. It's not always glamorous, as is evident from Keller's example 
of protecting his sheep from the nose flies that he experienced while shepherding in East Africa. In fact, sometimes it is downright unpleasant and onerous work to do discipleship. But this is what Jesus calls his disciples to in the passage before us. And unlike, uh, unlike me, I should say, some of you may have experience with sheep, unlike me who doesn't, these men would have lived closer to shepherds and closer to the analogy to be able to understand and infer what sort of work it was that Jesus was calling them to. It would be a more intuitive analogy to them than it is for me personally. It would be more like Jesus saying to someone like Philip Keller, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. So catch people through evangelism, the way that a fisherman catches fish. Work at it patiently and persistently. There's not always a one-to-one correspondence between effort and success. But Jesus will see to it that the church does indeed fulfill the Great Commission. And then once these people, once people are caught, so to speak, the disciples must embrace the task of caring for these people, feeding them, and tending them in the various ways that they continue to stand in need. Notice, by way of emphasis, as I've said already, that this apostolic task is not glamorous or self-serving. Many who call themselves apostles today presumably envision themselves as carrying out the apostolic task. But many of them, many other church leaders today, whatever their title, whether they call themselves apostles or pastors or bishops or whatever, whatever their title, many church leaders today are operating in a way far removed from the apostolic mandate. Are they busy about evangelism? Calling people to faith in Christ and repentance toward Christ? Are they teaching them sound doctrine? Giving them a godly example? Exhorting and rebuking them as necessary? Protecting them from all their nose flies? And in so doing so, providing the aftercare that Christ's sheep need after coming to faith? Sadly, The answer, in many cases, is no. In many cases, church leaders view their role as being a role that serves their own interests. They accrue wealth for themselves at the expense of the church. They revel in the power and the prestige that they exert and possess over the congregation. They view the work of church leaders not as a role of service, but as a role of being served, which is so unlike Jesus, who said of himself that he came not to be served, but to serve. And it is the opposite of the duties and the responsibilities that Jesus gives the apostles here in this passage. Notice that what he's telling them to do is to go get tired and sunburned and dirty and smelly, bringing in fish and protecting sheep from nose flies. That sort of thing. Jesus is not granting these guys a position of 
temporal exaltation and self-gratification. He is calling them to a life not of being served, but of serving. And so these men need to become men who willingly choose to experience rejection and hostility from unbelievers as they labor in evangelism. These men need to become men who willingly take on emotional burdens and other various difficulties, including hostility even from other believers at times as they provide aftercare or discipleship for those who have become Christ's sheep. The author of Hebrews alludes in Hebrews 13, 17 to the fact that sometimes caring for the souls of other Christians involves groaning more so than joy due to the uncooperative behavior of those being cared for. The apostles are to willingly choose to care for their souls anyway. There's a crossover song by pop artist Pink and country artist Chris Stapleton in which part of the lyrics reads like this. Even if you see my scars, even if I break your heart, can you still hold me when it hurts or would you walk away? Even if I scandalize you, cut you down, criticize you, tell a million lies about you, what would you say? Could you? Could you? Could you? Could you? Could you love me anyway? The answer of those who take up the apostolic task to feed and to tend Christ's sheep must be yes by God's grace I will love you anyway Paul doesn't describe his life's work as having his cup filled but having his cup poured out he says in Philippians 2.17 Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He writes to a young pastor in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he immediately compares the pastoral work to being an Olympic athlete, and a farmer. All of these roles, soldier, Olympic athlete, farmer, they involve a great measure of sacrifice, difficulty, hard work, discomfort. Each of these things brings out an aspect of the work that church leaders must do in fishing and shepherding. So one application of this passage today is that pastors and other church leaders ought to think of their role correctly. The job pertains to serving and caring for people. Let me say that again. The job pertains to serving 
and caring for people before and after coming to faith. It is not about accruing wealth, nor the praise of men, nor exerting power over them to feed one's ego, nor whatever other self-serving, self-aggrandizing aspect someone imagines might be attached to the job. If you understand what fishing is like, and you understand what shepherding is like, it's not a glamorous, self-serving job. That's one application. Another application is that every Christian should be involved to some extent in fishing and shepherding. It is not only Peter who is to fish for men, as I mentioned, and to feed and to tend Christ's sheep, but all the apostles. It is not only the apostles, but the whole church which is to shoulder this apostolic mandate. Remember that in Matthew 28, Christ Jesus gives the great commission to the disciples standing before Him as representatives of the whole church. We know that that has to be the case because it would be impossible for the 11 men standing there, 12 minus Judas, to accomplish the work amongst themselves making disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching all nations to observe all that Christ has commanded. There's just no way that Christ Jesus envisioned that those 11 men would single-handedly do it. And so when Jesus puts the commission on them, He's putting the commission on them as representatives for the whole church, that they will in turn do what Paul said and what you have heard from me and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And more than that, not only is this commission for the disciples and the other faithful men whom they commission as church leaders, but it's going to be for the whole church, the officers and the non-officers alike, the leaders and the lay people, the people in the pulpits and the people in the pews. The apostles had a role to play in this work, as did and as do other church leaders. But what is the role of church leaders in the fulfilling of the Great Commission? Not to do it single-handedly, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry, as Ephesians 4 and verse 12 puts it. In that chapter, Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16, Paul writes that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, according to Ephesians 4, whose job is it to do ministry? All of ours. Whose, whose job is it to build up the body of Christ? Thereby tending the sheep. All of ours. Who is to speak the truth in love? Thereby feeding the flock of Christ. All of ours. Look at what Ephesians 4.16 says. The body grows and builds itself up in love, quote, when each part is working properly. So, if you don't do your job, will the body grow and build itself up in love the way that it ought to? Or the way that it could? The answer is no. You have a role to play in the body of Christ. So if you're part of the body, it is necessary that you are working properly if the body is to grow and to build itself up in love. So this does not negate the role of leadership in the task that the whole church has, which is to go make disciples and teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. But this does define and limit it. The leaders of the church are to do some of the ministry of the church. And if a church like ours has someone like me set aside for the work of ministry without having to divide his time between ministry and a secular vocation, then it is natural to expect that he would do proportionately more than the average church member. It's good and right and natural and appropriate to set aside leaders to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, as the early church did in Acts chapter 6. But both the church leaders and the congregation should be quite clear that having leaders who are doing some ministry is not a legitimate excuse for any other church member to avoid doing ministry himself or herself. We are all to be fishers of men and shepherds of sheep to some extent. Since that is the way that John frames the duties involved in the Great Commission. This is his way of putting it to us. Fishers of men, feeding Christ's sheep, tending Christ's sheep. And since the Great Commission is a task entrusted to all of us, it's not then just the people in the pulpits who have to fish for men and feed and tend Christ's sheep. But it's all of us. We are all to be calling people to faith in Christ in the first place. And once people come to faith, we're all to be providing aftercare to them throughout the duration of their lives, feeding and tending one another. That's a picture of what the church ought to be and to do. That's our mandate. It is difficult. Many of you know firsthand and not just in theory because of the experiences that you've had in your life. You know evangelism is difficult. And you know that discipleship is difficult. Perhaps you've really battled with a fish on the other end of the line. And at the end of the day, the line snapped and you lost the fish and you flipped backwards out of the boat and you know, made, a, made a mess of it and came home with nothing. 
Maybe at some point some fish flung out of the water and hit you and injured you. Maybe at some point you were, had to deal with some nose flies in someone that you were discipling. And there was just a, a, a difficult and a, an onerous aspect of discipling someone. Maybe you've experienced some friendly fire and another brother or sister in Christ started shooting at you, so to speak, instead of shooting across the trenches at the enemy. And you know that discipleship is rough sometimes. Many of you know firsthand that evangelism and discipleship is hard work. But let us all embrace the difficult and the tiresome work of going fishing and feeding and tending Christ's flock. Let us embrace it for Christ's sake, who has called us to this work. Out of love for Jesus, let us labor at these things. We might fish all night and catch nothing sometimes, but we may be confident that in due time, Jesus will help us make a catch. And we might grow weary of tending one another, especially when someone doesn't want to be tended and is uncooperative. And we might grow weary in helping one another with these repulsive nose flies, so to speak, from time to time, as we all continue to struggle and to sin in many ways. But Jesus loves his sometimes uncooperative and parasite-infested sheep. And we also ought to love one another. Enough to love one another in it, in spite of it, and insofar as we are able to love one another out of it. May God make us the kind of church that diligently fishes for men, and tirelessly and faithfully feeds and tends Christ's sheep.